but with my mom. And also, you know, just that marriage and partnership of, I was just instilled with, you can do anything you want. I have one sister and it doesn't matter if you're tall or short or a woman or a man or of color or not, just sort of the sense of you can do everything you want. Welcome to the Leader Workout Podcast, sponsored by Spirity. We exist to provide a forum for leaders to learn, grow, teach, and share tangible leadership principles and practical experiences with other leaders. Wendy Bauman is the president and CVO at the Wisconsin Women's Business Initiative Corporation, or WIBIC. Wendy shares anecdotes that molded her progressive mindset, as well as some leadership tips to successfully work with people you do not like. She then talks about her company's mission to reduce inequity for marginalized groups. Tune in to hear Wendy's perspectives on empowering women, creating economic wealth, and realizing that some downsides are actually not downsides at all. Okay, well, thank you for attending the Leadership Workout Podcast. I'm Darren Fisher, your host, and I have such a wonderful, powerful leader in the Wisconsin area and just doing amazing things and setting an example. And so could you please introduce yourself? Sure, well, I'm Wendy Bauman. And I am president CVO of this great organization called the Wisconsin Women's Business Initiative Corporation, also known on the streets as WIBIC. Yes. Okay. And so WIBIC, what is the mission of WIBIC? What do you guys try to do? Yeah. Well, what we try to do is really level the playing field where there's inequity, real or perceived. That's what we're about. And we are a statewide, innovative economic development corporation. And we focus specifically on providing quality business and financial education coupled with access to what we term sort of fair and responsible capital to individuals that are looking to start, grow, or expand a business in the state of Wisconsin. And those individuals specifically, we, WIBIC actually came out of the women's economic empowerment movement and out of the micro-lending movement 33-some years ago. So we've been around for a bit. And we still remain very, very focused on women where there is just definite inequity remains on people of color on lower wealth individuals. Sometimes we call them pre-rich. Okay. <laughs> also veterans and military connected families. So we're really center our work around the people that we think have great promise and great entrepreneurial ideas to make sure that we're providing, again, those quality programs to get them started in business and growing their business ventures in Wisconsin. Okay, so I don't have to be a woman to take advantage of opportunities. Not at all. Anybody can come to any of Wibbick's programming, but you will see us focusing on the clients that we just shared. Yeah, right. but anybody can come, come one, come all, and we do. As I say, sometimes we have rich white men that come to our programs, and that's fine because they maybe need help in starting a business. So it really goes all around. That's awesome. And then, so what made you sort of pivot between, if you started out with women, what made you pivot and expand the the reach? Uh, well, we really started out with women of color, lower wealth. Okay. So it was really, really that part, sort of an anti-poverty alleviation strategy that was cutting edge. Nobody was doing micro-lending. Nobody was really paying 30 years ago attention to women starting small business ventures. So really from day one, it was focus women, focus women of color, focus very low income. And we've carried those through. You know, bittersweet that 30 years later, we still need to focus our efforts there, but we do. We're trying to making some headway and we are. We and many, many others, you know, around our nation are making greater headway to provide that level playing field and really try to reduce the inequity that still exists. 
You seem like you really believe in this. I do believe in it. Okay. Yeah. What makes I've you... been well, I'm in my 26th year. <laughs> okay. So I better believe so, in that so or otherwise st- it's been hard. Okay. Yeah. You started at 13 and then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank okay. you, you for all the going... people that don't see me today, you know, on the <laughs> podcast. Thank you. Thank you. No, that's great. So, I mean, to have that vision to see you can make that difference. There's something inside of you that made you believe you could do that. Yeah. What is it about you that drives you to say, you know, I'm a leader. We really can make this difference. I think it goes back to family and growing up in that piece. And so I had two amazing role models, my mom and dad, but I would say very non-traditional. And part of that was my mom grew up in a small community, Plymouth, Wisconsin, you know, relatively small community. And at that time, my mom now is 87 and just talked to her this morning. (laughs) And at that time, women went to high school, of course. Young girls went to high school, but not that many went on to college. So she not only went on to college at University of Wisconsin-Madison, but then she continued on to get her master's degree and then continued on to get her PhD from the University of London. So again, very non-traditional at that time. My dad actually had to chase her down in London to say, hey, don't stay there, come back and marry me. And that's what he did. And she said, yes. And you know that was that, but they were sort of also childhood sweethearts and friends, best of friends, and they still are. So that was her educational background, but she had a full career. She was professor of political science at UW-Milwaukee. She was head of the Institute of World Affairs, Dr. Carol Bauman, worked in the State Department in the Carter administration under Cy Vance, the Secretary of State. So she was an assistant. Secretary of State looking over Western Europe affairs and lived in D.C. there and then decided to come back, though, to UW-Milwaukee and continued on in her capacity as professor and running the institute. So I grew up with that, thinking that doesn't everybody's mom have a PhD? And doesn't everybody's mom, uh, you know, she ran for Congress in 1968 as a Democrat in a very Republican district. She didn't win, but doesn't everybody's mom run for Congress? Sure they do. So I knew no other. It was that exposure. And then my dad worked in personnel. He worked for Marquette University for a while, head of large HR areas, but he really was and still is an entrepreneur. So he owned numerous small businesses, penny candy stores, old-fashioned antique stores, culinary stores, basically retail, mostly tea rooms, restaurants, all of that. It was a good thing my mom had the day job, (laughs) but nothing was a disaster. So I grew up with the sense of entrepreneurship and that you can do it and you can run this small business. He had his little office in the basement. I mean, like many WIPIC clients that we have now, but with my mom and also just that marriage and partnership of, it was just instilled with, you can do anything you want. I have one sister and it doesn't matter if you're tall or short or a woman or a man or of color or not, just sort of the sense of you can do everything you want. But tinkled in that a little bit is something else that's significant. So since my mom really did have really a pretty significant career and sometimes would go off on international trips for weeks. Oh, wow. My sister and I are little kids, right? Okay. My dad's working. So who's going to take care of us? I needed chicken noodle soup at lunch <laughs> right. when I came back from school. And so early we had a couple different, you know, caretakers or nannies, but then it was really a very special person named Catherine Horton that came into our family before I was even in school. So I was probably three years old when she came into our family and she stayed with us all the way through myself, graduating from high school and into college. And so we called her Cat. And she lived in public housing in Milwaukee. She was African-American. She had two sons. And so she was part of our family, but every single day came and was just part of our family. And so I always say that I grew up with two moms, a white mom and a black mom. (laughs) And that's part of my views today. It's part of why, again, later on, what's the deal here? White people have issues with black people. I didn't understand that. I grew up with a white mom and a black mom, and I thought everybody loved everybody. 
And so it wasn't until that adultness that you wake up to some of those things about women in the workplace, about African-Americans or people of color. And so part of those reasons are why I'm at Wibbeck. That is awesome. And that drive the passion. That's a great story. So now you're leading this. And I know that we're all a product of our environment in a lot of ways where you get exposed to different things. And so for you, when did you first know that you were a leader? Kindergarten. Okay, kindergarten. Yeah, kindergarten, very first day of kindergarten, I met my best friend, Barbie Stoltz, and she was sort of clanging away, played dishes in the kindergarten area. I'm sure kindergartens are totally different then, but they had like little play kitchens. And I go like, what's all that noise going on in the kitchen? And she goes, oh, we're doing a dinner party. And of course, my dad, owning restaurants, like, I know how to do a dinner party, right? Mm -hmm. So from that point on, I go, wait a minute, wait a minute, we need to do it like this. So I sort of think just funny about that, that really back then, I sort of was a little bit of a leader. You know, or bossy could be a little (laughs) bit of that too. I am still bossy because you can be a leader and not bossy, but I am a little bit bossy and you have to watch that too. (laughs) Two older sisters, they walk the fine line between bossy and leader, more bossy than leader, but that's a different conversation. And one's a principal now, still bossing. So it's good. (laughs) No, that's great. And so you just knew and then. Well, not so much new, but now again, adult self looking back to child self, I could go, huh, that's interesting. Huh, that's interesting. I'm in charge of the Kool-Aid stand on the block. Huh, that's interesting. I'm putting on the fair to raise money for muscular dystrophy. And I might be younger, but I'm going, no, let's do it this way. Come on, let's organize it this way. Come on, let's do that. So adult self looking back, then I can see some of those leadership, convening, coordinating, activism. Got it. And it's always some kind of a compassion towards helping others. It wasn't just your own ambition for you to be a leader. It was more making an impact in some areas. I would say overall. I mean, I remember being a little kid and my mom's dad died young, died of cancer. And I was probably five at the time. And that was hard. I just loved my grandfather and I saw my mom sad. And again, probably now he would have lived much longer. But at that time, it didn't have all the things you have. And I remember saying to my mom, it's okay, mom, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to find a cure for cancer. So there was just sort of this sense of making the world a better place. And again, probably from really good parents and growing up with that kind of peace. But I'm competitive. I want to win a Monopoly. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to win. Yeah. So, I mean, I got my own ego stuff too, you know, and I sometimes say at Wibbeck, we have this thing about winning, but we're winning for the greater good. It's not about like, oh, I just want to win to win. It's winning for the greater good. That's awesome. So I look at you and a lot of people look at you and you're just amazing person, have amazing impact. And a lot of people will say, of course, she's great because look at how she was raised and look at her opportunities. But there are other people who don't know the hard times. And what's an example for you of a time where you didn't do well, that you failed? And how'd you overcome that? I think it mainly relates to around people. Sometimes I have this expression that I love humanity, but people give me pause. (laughs) (laughs) And so also a person that really taught me, I've met him a few times, not a friend, but I've met him as Dr. Muhammad Yunus. And he would go, each time I'm feeling that something's not going right, rather than putting blame on it, I think what I can do differently. So it is a sense about maybe I failed to share, to do, to enact in a certain way. So what can I do differently? And I really try to build it in my life. Instead of saying, you know, you should have, I think I should have explained better this or that. So some of those things around failure that I can think about, I'll use Wibbeck as an example. I think that I've failed or I feel that I could have done a lot better some of Wibbeck's work around technology. I don't think of myself as a real techie individual. 
And again, when I came to Wibbeck 26 years ago, sort of me, myself, and I, the budget was $250,000. So I just sort of would go like, oh, I don't think we need the technology. You know, we can do it this way. We can do it that way. And I think that, I think if I would have brought somebody on or brought counsel on, what have you, around technology, we maybe could have done some things faster, better, easier. So I think that's one area. But I think I've addressed it now with surround yourself with people that really know systems and processes and the technology is not in and of itself. Mm -hmm. It's a use Mm -hmm. so that our clients only have to fill out a form once because we have good technology and our clients only have to then do this or our staff doesn't have to do things twice because of the use of technology. They can spend five minutes, not 50 minutes on things. So that's one. And then the other one I think is a failure to see that everybody doesn't see the world like me. Mm. Yeah. I think everybody sees the world like me, right? (laughs) Everybody sees that women should get paid equally. Everybody sees that there's really no difference between a person of color and a white person. Everybody sees this, but no, they don't. And sometimes then it's uh, hurt because they don't see that. And sometimes I have different expectations on people because they don't see that. So constantly reminding myself that not everybody sees things with my lens. And that's also a great thing. We wouldn't want everybody to see anything from anybody's lens, but especially around some of those really important issues. The other part is I talk too fast. I walk too fast. I know it, but that's what you got. But I have to realize that not everybody's that way. So sometimes also I fail to see that I might be too much for some people. And that might be for a coworker. That might be for somebody that reports to me. So I have to also remember that. What can I do differently around that to embrace that individual or that situation the very best way I can. Just to be cognizant of self, sort of constantly. I sometimes play the tarot cards in my head. I know that this is how I feel the people are responding to me, so I have to really use that card carefully. This is my view of self. This is how others view me kind of deal. So I you know, sometimes do that in my head, play those tarot cards out. <laughs> Got it. In order to stay on top of your game, because you're growing, uh-huh. Wibbeck has grown from when you started. I mean, like significant Yeah, growth. from a $250,000 budget to now a $8 million budget, $21 million okay. portfolio, five offices, six offices. Yeah, 60 staff. Okay, so a little yeah. bit bigger. Okay, a little good. bit, a little bit. <laughs> good. What do you do to maintain your leadership, to stay on top of that, to continue to grow? Because you can't be the mm-hmm. same person you were. What do you do regularly to work out? I do read amount, both fiction, nonfiction. Fiction, you got to just to get away from stuff. Otherwise, I would just be like Wibbeckized, you know, kind of stuff. It's just too much. You got to have some other parts of your wheelhouse. Mine personally is cooking and and that kind of thing. Talk about that later too, perhaps. But I would say that I do read. I'm not a big monster reader of the newest book on leadership. I actually sort of diss those. I don't know. And so it's like not good advice. I'm not giving good advice. I don't know. I just feel like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's going to read it and that's going to be it. So people ask it all the time. You know, I buy them for other people. Maybe you you might want to read it. I'm more pithy, quick articles in magazines, maybe around the industry specifically, because I think there's some generic things in leadership all around. But I also think that there's some specific things around specific industry leadership, around financial education, around education overall, around lending kind of stuff. So I'm more on those shorter, pithy reads, digest it, get it, read it, as opposed to sort of reading the books. And I read a lot. I mean, I got in my house, tons and tons and tons of books. I'm just not reading the newest thing on leadership or styles or this or that. 
No, that's, I don't think there's one leadership style or one uh-huh. leadership approach. You sort of, you can observe leadership and learn from that. Uh-huh. You can read. There's so many different ways to get experience from leadership. You can fail by leading people and have them leave you. And then you realize, hey, I didn't do that right. Yeah. So there's other ways to learn leadership. Just curious about how you work out. Yeah. And then I would say too, at a lot of our national conferences, we'll often have sort of no conference, hour long, two hour long meetings with CEOs of similar kind of groups where we can really sort of then open our wings a little bit. And talk. And so I think being in this industry for so long, I will turn sometimes to those professional comrades, if you will, too, around just chewing on this and I'm just losing sleep on it. You know, have you experienced something like that? So, you know, I think in throughout your career, then you align yourself to people that you trust, but that are still different, but maybe again, in somewhat that same industry and look at that. Oh, no, that's awesome. Thank you. So one of the things that we also have to really overcome, each of us is working with difficult people from a leadership perspective. Mm-hmm. What's something that you've learned over your years on how do you deal with the difficult? Because anyone can lead the easy. Right. It's hard to lead the difficult. Yeah. A couple things. I remember one time there was this individual that I would have to say that I feel like I just did not like. And in the same kind of industry, running an organization similar. And lo and behold, of course, I'm going to be on the panel with her. (laughs) And so I'm having anxiety about it. And my assistant, Lisa, goes, I'm going like, I want to do this panel. I want to do this panel. You know, I was being a kid. I was being immature about it too, right? It's like, I don't want to do this panel. I don't have to do this panel. I'm given it. And she goes, Wendy, you have to find one thing that's common ground with that individual. You have to find one thing. You got to like one thing. But I don't like anything about it. <laughs> Wendy, you got to find one thing you like about her. And it's really interesting that really worked. So I knew that this person was really into her daughter. So the first thing I said is blankety blank. How's your daughter? And she just sort of says part of the same thing. She really didn't like me either. Right, you know, right, it's right. just like we're different styles, different ways, both doing it. Who knows? And that really throughout, it's been now almost eight years. It's not like we're still best buds because we just different stuff, but that really, really worked. Finding one thing of common ground that would be safe and common ground to talk about and find one thing that, you know, I could sort of like about her. And so that's a way to begin that when you have to deal with difficult people or again, it's sort of the sense of, I'm not sure I like that person. And as I use the expression, no, I'm good. Just don't sit me next to him or her at the Thanksgiving table. <laughs> okay. So I think we have to. And I think, again, you have to realize that you're not going to like everybody. You're not going to love everybody. But we have to work with a lot of different people. Sometimes you can choose. Sometimes you can, but sometimes you can't. And so you have to make the best of it, but find that. And sometimes it takes a little bit of time. Really takes the effort. And you need to make the effort. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So... One of the things I've sort of observed is there's objective right for people. There's things that you know when presented with a way to do something that you may not like to do, but you just do it like, for example, working out. I know for me, I don't like to work out. I don't want to work out. But the reality is if I don't work out, cholesterol is worse. Mm -hmm. Blood pressure is worse. I can't move as well as I can. Mm -hmm. So just things like that. And I have a great story. My wife, so I had two kids, eighth grader and a sixth grader, and I bought a bunch of lean cuisines because I was trying to stay healthy. So I had like 12 of them in the, they were like two bucks a piece. And about 12 of them had them in the freezer. And my daughter, she was in eighth grade at the time. She ate three of them. And I was so upset. And I was telling Michelle, I said, I can't believe Darian ate three of my lean cuisines. And she says, well, did you cook for her? And I said, well, no. She says, well, then you can't be mad at her. And I was like, you're right. I can't get mad because she's just eating and it's my job to feed her. So what's an example for you of something that is 
objectively just right to you that you know you may not want to do it. Like, for example, your host sitting next to a person or finding mm-hmm. the one thing, and maybe that is your objective right. What's something that you could say for people to say, yep, this is something I learned is an objective right. If I presented with it, I got to do it. Well, sometimes I think we make too big a deal of it. We don't feel like we don't want to do it. If there's things that I really don't want to do, like maybe the organization goofed up on something, and I feel that I, as the president, need to make the phone call to that funder, to that client, what have you. The more you angst about it, the worse it is. It's use the Nike expression, just do it. So those ugly things that you have to do, rather than putting them off and so on, just do it. It's, again, what's going to be that disastrous? So one of it's that, just do it. So things that, again, I don't like as much or that's not the fun stuff, I try to do that first, even in the day. Let me take care of those things first. That's like, oh. You know, sometimes it's a dislike and sometimes just a matter of it's not my favorite thing to do, as I say, but you just do it. The other part about it is to look at the downside. Usually in life, it's the things we don't do that we regret, not the things that we do do. So when you come to it, you look, what is the downside? What is the downside of even the situation with your daughter? What's the downside? Really? Buy three more meals. Really explain to her, daddy's trying to watch, you know, wait a little bit. And so I bought this special food. So you were hungry. I totally get it. But I want you to know it's sort of my special food. And, you know, if you're really hungry, you got it again. But it's kind of stuff that I'm really trying to do this. So, you know, sort of again, they always say they're explaining the why behind it, but to look at the downside. And when you begin to look at that downside, it usually is not that scary. It's not that scary. And sometimes I think this is wisdom of being over the years. I think sometimes I would fight things more. Someone would say, do this or whatever. And I'm feeling like, oh, I'm not sure. Maybe a boss or maybe again in my last 26 years, board of directors, I think you really need to do this. And I'd sort of go, I really don't think we should spend our time on that. In my mind, it's like the little bubble overhead of saying, this is dumb, I don't want to do it. I think I fought it more. And unless I feel it's going to compromise, if it's going to compromise, then you have to make the case. You have to make the case. But if it's really not going to compromise and it's not going to be huge, just do it. Just do it. Yeah. And then move on to the next. That's it. Because there'll be another of thing. Course. So you just seem like a very energetic person. Like you walk too fast. <laughs> you talk too fast. Get that. What energizes you? What's the thing that you sort of love to do a passion? I know you talked about cooking and maybe that's your thing. What is it that gives you that juice? Well, really, Wibbit gives me that juice. I mean, it's Wibbit itself as the vehicle, but it's the vehicle of, as we say, really impacting lives on an economic basis and positive. And entrepreneurs are so much fun to be around. They really are. They're just the glasses half full. It's you. It's people like you. It's people like you. It's that. And so that is very energizing in and of itself. So I think the work itself becomes very energizing. I think I'm also just blessed with energy. I wake up in the morning. I do not need coffee. I'm good to go. (laughs) I still like coffee, but I do not need coffee. Okay. So I'm good to go. I'm also just a doer. I have to actually work a little bit at calming down. And so the read is a way of calming down. Biking is a way of calming down. Cooking is a release and a relieve and just love it. And it sort of gets me away from, again, responsibility, gets away from the Wibbick at hand. So cooking is, again, sort of another relief to calm that part down a little bit. So you have multiple things that keep you energized, mm-hmm. even though you're naturally energetic. Yeah. It still becomes Yeah, yeah work I'm not really, work. I think there's some things in people. I, I imagine some people do have to work at that. I guess I've been blessed with the work that I love that I have not had to find what is going to energize me. And I have not had to find that in all my different positions. That's awesome. So, I mean, I think you live by the passion. People say, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your right. life. But if you love what you do, you actually will never work a day at your right. life. And so you right. 
it's the weekend's blur. It's not a matter of, oh, I got to do all this reading or, oh, yeah. I've got to do these reports. It's get up in the morning. Get, can't we do it? That's good. Know? That's good. Sometimes it's doing it with a glass of wine in the evening. Sometimes it's doing it with a cup of coffee in the morning, but it's still advancing the good work. Okay. Trips planned. Is there some fun Valencia, place? Valencia. Oh my gosh. January 19. Oh, yep. 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 Cook and eat and drink. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so we get an apartment for most of the time. Okay. And so Who's the we? my partner. Tony, Tony and I. So we get a place. Beautiful. We always look. My question is, how many burners? Okay. I'm sure the bedroom is going to be nice. How many burners in the okay. kitchen? Okay. <laughs> so every day is actually quite similar. You know, just wake up, wake up, enjoy, make coffee or go out and get coffee on the street somewhere and then really sort of think about the meal ahead. And so usually I'll go out every single day and buy fresh fish and seafood at the market. And then we'll come back and then do something. Sightsee, do, walk, bike, all of that. And then come back in the evening and most of the evenings then we'll do an out lunch, but then most of the evenings are fabulous meal, if I do say so myself, and great Spanish wine and talking, listening to music and just getting into it. So you're going to Spain and you're going to be cooking your own meals mm-hmm. and you must love cooking mm-hmm. and that is mm-hmm. a passion. Yeah, yeah that, is, a passion. that is awesome. Yeah. Can't wait, and can't wait. What's different about food there versus here? Or have you been before? Oh, yeah. Okay, so what's different about... Well, the markets. So, you know, in Milwaukee, we have a great Milwaukee public market. I was part of building the Milwaukee public market, and it's it's great. Love it, love it. But their markets are really the way of life. So you just see, again, all of these independent, locally businesses. The food itself, amazing. So fruits and vegetables, different from here. Seafood galore. Here, you go to fish market, yeah, you get a handful, five, six different kinds of fish. There you get 20. 30 different kinds of fish. Here in the United States, it's sort of like one kind of shrimp. They're frozen and the heads are off. There, there's gambas and there's shrimp the size of your fingernail, shrimp up to the size of your head kind of shrimp, all with heads on, all fresh, just been in the waters day before. So you just have this huge plethora and richness of the food. But it's also the way of life there. It's the family around the cooking. It's the pace. It's just, it's many, many things. Because I'm eventually going to retire in Spain. That's the plan. So that's the plan. And Valencia? Probably the Valencia area. Probably. One of the best places I've ever visited in my life. Love Valencia. The people, the spices, the Mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. I just loved it. And the architecture because the gentleman who actually did Yeah, Mm -hmm. was from Valencia. Yeah. Yeah. And he did our art museum here. So it looks the exact same. So we got there. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, whoa. Yeah, you have actually like six Calatravas in that riverbed. Yes, exactly. It's amazing. Calatrava uh, village. Yes, exactly. So no, it's awesome. So any parting words you have for us? Because I just really do appreciate Good. the time. No, absolutely. No, I think things like this are helpful. I like to listen. This would be another example of listening to other people and sharing those experiences. I'm more of an experiential learner. Let me come along with you and see how you do it. I mean, that's really how I learned cooking. Jacques Pepin showed me everything. Of course, really? he did it via TV, <laughs> but I feel like he exactly showed me how yeah, to do things. it was just things. you. You were the only right. person That's watching. Right. It was all totally those chefs, for you. They're yes. all my friends. They're all yes. my friends. So I think experiential learning, listening is really good. And I just, I appreciate you, you know, poking on that failure piece or that barrier piece and how we look at that, focusing on sort of what makes you the way you are. Those are good things to reflect on because the sooner we know that in life, really, I think the more we can do. Thank you so much. You know, I appreciate you so much and look forward to continuing the relationship. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Take care. So for those of you that don't have time to listen to a full podcast, we're going to give you a one-minute leader workout, something you can do to improve your leadership in just one minute. This is your one-minute workout. Let us know how that's working out for you.
It's interesting when you think about advantage and disadvantage, many people think that some of us are born with inherent advantages and some of us are born without them. But I believe that each one of us has a unique story that gives us an advantage to compete. If you were given no resources, you learn how to compete without them. If you're given a lot of resources, you learn how to leverage them. So what resources for you that you grew up with that you're taking for granted that can help you achieve your greater success? That's your one minute workout. Let me know how that's working out for you. What area of leadership frustrates you the most? If you're a leader and want to join a community of successful strategic visionaries, we encourage you to subscribe to the mailing list to stay connected with the Leader Workout podcast community. Don't forget to rate and leave a review in your favorite podcast app.